This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to the first Fight Back of 2023. And it comes on a Monday, time for our Zoomer squad. And I can think of no better way to start the new year than with a conversation about the latest set of priorities for our older demographic. That and a little refresher on some of the tax and spending changes that will affect us. So if you have comments and questions, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP. Hello, everyone. Hi, Hi Libby. Libby. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Uh, David, you have some handy-dandy stats on uh, the implications of some of these tax changes. Well, I was looking at how many uh, seniors would be affected um, by this. And as longevity uh, continues uh, unbroken and as more people are not retiring or unretiring or retiring but continuing with a part-time gig or something, the presence of tax paying tax uh, taxpayers in this age group is growing and growing and growing so these tax changes which traditionally wouldn't have benefited that quote unquote senior population as much there's huge numbers here there's over uh, 3 million people over the age of 65 who have personal incomes of over $50,000 never mind household incomes um there's where uh, is this national ontario national yeah. nationally um there are about one out of every six of the 7 million, 7.2 million seniors are still working in some form or another and earning income. And that's without taking into account income on their investments, property taxes, and so on. So I predict that a topic going forward will be the economic contribution made by that age group, continuing to be made by that age group. And therefore, a lot of these tax changes do, in fact, benefit uh, that age group, and uh, so we are going to continue to keep a very sharp eye on those uh, on those opportunities. And and what are the key tax changes? Well, we know that there's something very good for the actually the opposite, the lowest income right. uh, seniors here in Ontario. They're going to get up to a thousand dollars more from the provincial government. Uh, oh, indexing to inflation, right? Indexing your incomes to inflation. Will be will be important. Um, basically, I think anything that puts more after tax dollars into your pocket um, is going to be beneficial. So th- there's a whole raft of them here. I don't have. I, I don't yeah. want to com- claim that I have mastery over the whole list, but it is very important to this age group because we are taxpayers. Okay, Bill, what's your uh, take on all of that? Well, certainly uh, most of it is uh, is good uh, news and uh, expected. Uh, uh, one of the uh, one of the things that's going to affect uh, seniors more than uh, some people might understand is the uh, home renovation tax credit that's uh, going to be uh, available up to seventy five hundred dollars. So, if you have someone in your home who has a disability, whether senior or not, you'll be able to accommodate them. Now, there is a downside to, to that when the CARP is after them to to change, and that is it's a one-time only. So if, if for instance, husband and wife in, in a household, one needs uh, renovations inside to get a wheelchair around, the other one uh, uh, requires some other kind of uh, renovations, perhaps in a, in a bathroom. You can't uh, you can't have it twice, and you can't come back later for it. You could only—it's it, a one-time uh, only. So that's something that uh, we don't think is fair, and CARP wants to be changed. But but overall, uh, good uh, news. And and by the way, uh, uh, our Ontario residents have to be happy. You know, there's still some provinces that don't in- index the income tax. 
So uh, this is a benefit we get in Ontario that we we don't get in other uh, provinces across the country. Hmm. Peter? Yeah, so the the um, the tax rates um, being bumped up for inflation will certainly help people who have a job, uh, maybe those who got a raise or those who are reporting more investment income. So, um, you know, the, the sort of thresholds now have gone from <clears throat> 50,000. That's that, that you'd pay a 20, 20% tax on 50,000. Now, now you get a bit more wiggle room up to, uh, 53,000. And you don't go to the next highest tax break until you're making 106,000, which, so it used to be 100,000. So there's a little bit more money you can make each year. Um, and you're not necessarily going to jump up to it, to a higher tax bracket. So that, that's good news. Um, the basic personal amount is going up a little bit. So, um, you know, that, that's the amount you claim that you don't pay tax on. So it's going up to 15,000. So everyone gets a 15,000. Dollars that they won't have to pay tax on, um, and uh, a couple of other things. Tax-free savings account limit is going up, so you can put in more into your your TFSAs, and um, and of course the the benefits programs are are being indexed. So OAS, GIS. I don't know whether that happens on January first, but um, they they get indexed to inflation. Uh, so, some of the programs I think are in July, but uh, they will they will be indexed at some point. And you know, just uh, a, another thing to consider, which is off topic, not not something the government have, has done, but you know, a lot of older people like safety in their investments, and interest rates on guaranteed investments are as high as they have been in decades. Right. Yeah. And Absolutely. I think that a lot of people, you do have to lock up your money a bit, but, but even on, uh, high interest savings accounts, they're higher. They're not that high, but, uh, you know, you can, you can get, uh, well, not only a decent return on a GIC, but uh, better than what you might continue to lose in the market. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's one of the upsides of, of, um, higher interest rates, you know, cause, cause seniors, I've been looking for a safe uh, investment for years, and you know, with higher interest rates, GICs are looking better, annuities are looking better, you know, all these fixed income investment vehicles are looking better and safer and returning money. So, so that, that's good news for uh, conservative investors for sure. Uh, Peter, uh, sorry, I meant I, I meant Bill. Um, Bill, do you know people who are uh, suddenly uh, moving to invest in GICs? I'm hearing people uh, talking about it. Uh, they certainly are. Uh, they're a little um, uh, they're a little indecisive at this point with the talk of a downturn in the economy at the end of the year. They're wondering whether this is the time to to do it. Being very conservative in their uh, in their uh, in their thinking, so not something people are automatically jumping to uh, uh, right away. No, oh, I. Have to uh, full disclosure. That's one of the things I did on my vacation. <laughs> you know, there's another thing that's, that's going to help uh, seniors that uh, perhaps uh, won't be as noticeable, and that's the fact that uh, uh, they're going to allow more uh, first-time home buyers to save more money with a tax-free account, uh, similar to the regular uh, tax-free, so they can save up to $40,000. Uh, and that impacts seniors because so many of our uh, CART members especially are the bank of mom and dad yeah. trying to help uh, uh, the kids uh, buy a new home. So being able to put money in into this, even if, if it's money that uh, comes from the parents uh, in a similar way that often uh, education funds are, are set up, then everybody can uh, benefit by having that $40,000 aside for the, the first new home. Yeah, uh, it's not going to get you a down payment anywhere near here. But just speaking of the home, just to go back to a point Bill made about the home renovation credit, uh, um, I think it's an example of where they're not looking. One department isn't talking to the other because if it keeps me out of a nursing home or out of a hospital or lets me age in place, the savings to the healthcare system are way more than the $7,500 tax credit that, you know, why wouldn't they open it up and really go after it aggressively? 
Um, but they didn't. I mean, it's good. Bill points it out. It's a good thing, but it could have been way better. Okay, moving right along to uh, the bigger picture for 2023. David, what do you see as the priorities for the year? Uh, Well, you know, when they used to say uh, uh, the three secrets of real estate are location, location, and location, I think uh, for me this year it's healthcare, healthcare, and healthcare. Um, We are moving toward a recognition by the authorities that – the system is absolutely shattered. Um, they're beginning to recognize that the population isn't going to tolerate this much more. And they're looking at ways of increasing the supply of services. I think Ontario's move to let pharmacists write prescriptions in certain circumstances is recognition of that. So I think this is going to be a year of big, turbulent debate and discussion. We're going to be focusing on it very hot and heavy at CARP about um, uh, opening up the system to more innovation, to more resources, to more uh, choices in order to improve performance. And to me, that's the number one priority. Hmm. You know, it's interesting about, you know, other provinces have already opened things up to pharmacists. I'm uh, wondering, first of all, I think that some pharmacies are having the same kind of labor shortages that everyone else is. Yep. And I know even with flu shots or whatever, it it wasn't necessarily a situation where you could just walk in and get what you want that easily there. You know, I remember when we were trying to get our flu shots, like we'll do walk-ins between 10 and 11 on a Monday. Well, sorry. Uh, So I'm I'm wondering if uh, that will kind of impede the rollout of that, Peter. I think it will, Levy, and because um, because you know the the length of time it takes to get your prescription filled, it seems to be getting longer and longer, especially over the holidays. And um, I'm not sure, like w- with all these new people coming in for like to check on their um, you know their hives and like the, these consultations take uh, longer than a simple discussion over the counter. You know, you're going to have to have a separate room. And in some cases, they're going to have to look at the skin problem or the, uh, you know, you know, it's going to be a deeper consultation. I don't know a pharmacist who has, you know, all that time to spend for patients and uh, sort of run run the business of dispensing medication as well. well yeah, I've seen, uh, you know, even with other things like shots that require going into the private room, I've seen long lineups at the counter to pick up your prescription. Yeah. And yeah. here's the thing that I have to say annoyed me. So I finally realized I used to order a prescription when I needed it. Not anymore. I order it quite a bit in advance because it takes them a long time to fill it. But then if you don't pick it up right away, you are deluged, not only with email messages, but phone calls. And I'm thinking, couldn't that person be doing something useful? Hello, it's the holiday time. I'm not going to make a special trip because I ordered the thing, you know, three weeks in in, in advance because otherwise it won't be ready. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so I... I, 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 I totally agree like I, I don't think many pharmacists are, are equipped to to deal with these changes like are you going to have to book an appointment with them it's going to be a walk-in I, service I suspect like, you will have to book an appointment and then it's just like going to see a doctor then right like it's uh, well it may be easier than going to see a doctor yeah because uh, uh, I've found that when I had appointments for shots and whatnot they weren't on time but they weren't that far off okay. Okay, um, but it, but, but we'll a, see. Like, like I I agree with the the principle behind this, and and I hope it it makes things easier for people who don't really need to go see a doctor to get what they need. But uh, like I'm I'm sure the like it, it, it's not going to roll out that quickly. I, I think there's going to be some hiccups before they figure out how the system's going to work. Another thing, uh, there are all these changes to uh, the payment for virtual visits, and I'm wondering. You know, at first I thought, oh, that's not good because, but it's for virtual visits with doctors that you don't see and that don't know you. So I'm wondering, is is that really a problem? Because I think the rule is to get the regular rate. It has to be a patient that you've seen in the last two years. And to me, that 
kind of makes sense rather than these pop-up, you know, clinics there. I don't know. the. But a lot of people are complaining about it. Bill, do you have a view? Well, yes. Uh, I don't think there's any question that uh, uh, virtual care is coming and uh, uh, we should be expecting uh, uh, more of it. And and this is, you know, really aimed at those people who don't have a doctor uh, at the the moment and need this kind of of, uh, care and anything that can be done to make that uh, more more available is going to be uh, is going to be helpful uh, to the to the whole to the whole system. So so uh, being able to uh, uh, to get a quick um, uh, quick attention to uh, uh, to uh, to an issue from a from a doctor is really important to a to a lot of people. And uh, you know we know people who are waiting three and have to wait three or four months. To get an appointment with their regular uh, with their regular doctor, and most uh, uh, most calls, uh, most uh, situations can't wait uh, that long. So uh, we're a little concerned that the uh, uh, that they're not recognizing them at the same level as uh, if you were going to a doctor that you've been lucky enough to be seeing for a number of years. These are all the early signs of uh, change in the whole. Approach And so all these individual issues and problems that you're highlighting are, are true. But the Uber, the, the, the magna trend to me is that there is a critical shortage of supply of health care providers, whether it's doctors or nurses or nurse practitioners or PSWs. And the only way they can deliver on time or even close to on time medical care is to dramatically increase the supply. They cannot wait seven years for inbound freshmen at med school to get their certification. That's good, but it won't get there fast enough. And I think the gut, what you're seeing is the early embryonic signs of the government saying, we've got to open this up. We've got to increase the scope of practice of the people that are already in the field pharmacists. We've got to enable contact with a wider range of healthcare providers Hello, nurse practitioners, virtual health. It's an all of the above thing. And of course, you're right. You're right, Libby, that it's going to be this, this guy isn't ready. This sector is kind of there, but not really there. You talk to the pharmacists in Alberta where they've been prescribing for 10 years and they have a very different point of view about how much better it is for them to be able to do this instead of chasing a doctor for a prescription refill and waiting while he or she doesn't get the refill in a time. And there's the patient standing right in front of them. So there are going to be teething problems. But to me, the most interesting thing is I think that the governments everywhere have realized they need to exponentially increase the supply and they will do things that previously they weren't willing to do uh, in order to achieve that outcome. But is is cutting the fee for that type of virtual care, is that in line with that or is that doing the opposite? Watch is that a- other providers that aren't paid for by OHIP step up and provide those services with nobody stopping them. Okay. Guys, do you agree? Peter and Bill? Well, I, you know, I, I think cutting, cutting the virtual fees is going to, you know, doctors aren't going to want to do it if, if their fees are cut, right? So, like, like, that's a disincentive to provide more care. I think they're going to have to relook at, uh, at that change, you know. I'll abandon that. What? I predict they'll abandon that. Oh, okay. But it's, it's again, it's for these, uh, I think it's aimed at these kind of pop-up services. Yeah. Well, the rocket it, it doctor also, is one, for instance. And, yeah, it, and, and it, it also needs to be a part of the the, the negotiation when uh, uh, when the uh, medical organizations talk with the government about fees. Remember when when you reimburse a doctor who's working out of his own out of an office with all the uh, uh, costs that have to do with running that kind of uh, brick and mortar business, uh, you can argue that there's more cost to doing that than if you're uh, sitting in your in your home office and and doing it uh, virtually from from there. So there's some logic to it that's not just the case of of cutting 
cu- cutting the, the the cost so that uh, it's it's costing the government uh, less and has to be looked at in terms of what are the real costs of delivering that service. What's the appropriate markup? Just like we do for any other uh, uh, for any other service or uh, or product. So uh, as as David said, it's it, it's it's a teething time. Uh, but if uh, there's it's... a lot of a uh, lot of ins and outs to be to be worked out, but basically, uh, uh, you know, both having virtual uh, calls uh, available with a, a medical professional is really important to a lot of people, and having pharmacists able to uh, prescribe in in some areas too is also uh, going to help. There's steps in the right directions. Let's hope that the the people who are making the decisions on the political and the policy side. Are listening carefully to the to the experts and the people who are actually doing it, so the decisions are made for the right reasons. Uh, it's a couple of things that strikes me. So um, there are people who, no matter what change happens, they say this is a step to privatization. But these services that are curtailed, I think they're kind of a step to privatization. And second of all, if, if they're going to be paid, I, I looked at some of the rates. If a, a visit is cut from, say, 36 bucks to, to 12 or 15, cleaners make more than that. I mean, yeah, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, what you're, but what you're moving toward, because they can't supply, the, the, the model we have is that the government not only pays for the health care, but supplies the services that they're paying for. So it's a closed loop. It's essentially a monopoly of government-run services. The government's very good at writing checks. They're very bad at executing services in healthcare, particularly. And what they're being forced to do, and I think that this pressure is going to be irresistible, is open up more options and more sources of supply. Now, if people want to come along for ideological reasons and say, oh, that's the P word, that's privatization, uh, newsflash, we've already got that. We've already got like a million-tier healthcare because there's so many services that are not covered by OHIP in Ontario or by other provinces. So this is coming. This is uh, I predict this is not going to be a easily stoppable wave, and it's fed by the patient morphing into the consumer and demanding services in healthcare analogous to what consumers demand in other aspects of their life. And that's what we're seeing. And it's going to be difficult. It's going to be uh, I, problematic. It's coming for sure. I uh, All I know is that I've heard people in healthcare talk about that for decades, that, that uh, you know, saying, yes, we know that the system is, is more organized around the doctor than the patient. They talk about patient-centric. Uh, and, you know, a lot of it turns out to be talk. Because Until it gets bad enough, as it is now, that uh, it becomes harder and harder to uh, resist it. And I think it's the patients rising up. It's the community of the, the people on the receiving end who are making their views known, I think it's going to be harder and harder to ignore. Uh, okay. In my uh, is, well, we'll see. Uh, Peter or Bill, is there anything other than healthcare, healthcare and healthcare? Well, that's one, two, and three, but maybe four could be affordability. Um, you know, uh, some, some provinces are starting to mail out relief checks to uh, lower income, especially seniors. And um, Ontario's boosting the gains program. So, um, you know, the federal government response for seniors hasn't been great so far to inflation. So I think they're going to have to step up their efforts and, and reach more of these hard hit seniors. Bill? Uh, Peter's, Peter's, Peter's absolutely uh, uh, right. There's still... Uh, uh, federally uh, and provincially, we're still ignoring the the lowest uh, uh, income uh, seniors and the supports that they need. Even these new tax changes that are coming in uh, in Ontario, you know, we know that uh, somewhere around 10% of people don't even file uh, tax reports, which means they're not getting any of these uh, benefits. We may need to make it easier for people to to uh, f- have help in filing their their uh, income tax. We're not uh, uh, we're not giving them that. It's not available uh, to them, and and so the government is holding on to money that uh, that it should have. 
the other the other area of course uh, really galls a lot of our our cart members is that uh, uh, federally they announced a new dental uh, uh, benefit program but but it ended up being just for for children when we know that uh, uh, that seniors dental care is one of the uh, worst covered areas uh, in the province even, even though we have uh, in Ontario uh, people over 65 get a get a level of uh, dental care available uh, to them they still they still don't get uh, uh, full coverage and there's not a good plan to make sure that it's delivered to those people who need it like uh, those in long-term care uh, uh, homes who often go for months or years with uh, dental issues being ignored. So this, this is a major health area that CARP's going to be talking about in 2023. David, go Amen. ahead. Amen. No, it's true. But, but in going back to the affordability issue, um, there's at least 1 million seniors living in poverty by any uh, measure. And the absolute number is big enough to demand attention, even though the majority, thankfully, are not in that situation. So at some point, the levels of government, feds and provinces together have to decide, are we willing to sit with that reality or what can we do that's more in target, targeted benefits that are even better than what we're getting now? But it's a big population of seniors who are in poverty, have retired or are too old to continue working and are in very serious trouble. Okay, we have less than a minute left. I'm going to go around. I want one positive thing from each of you, <laughs> starting with Bill. Well, the positive thing uh, is that uh, uh, seniors are, are communicating using uh, the digital world in a way that they never did before. We're able to communicate uh, back and forth better. And I think in the, in the long run, this is going to be a support and a help to many of the issues that we're talking about now. Peter. You know, I, I, I think everyone is now realizing that this healthcare system is broken in every aspect, at every level. And um, when that's the case, I think people are much more willing to work together to make changes and find solutions to save it. And I think we'll see that sort of a much more collaborative spirit come uh, next year when we realize that if we don't get it right soon, you know, this thing is going to, it's not going to be there. David. Big attitude, continuing attitude change among seniors. More and more people every year determined to live better, live younger, to look at the future with optimism, to make plans, to not be on the defensive, but to reach out and grab opportunities and change their whole outlook on life. And that's a growing trend. Well, that's good. Okay. Thank you so much. And Happy New Year to Bill Van Gorder, Peter Mugridge, and David Kravitz. Thanks. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thanks, Happy Same to you. Okay. We are taking a break, and when we come back, the latest twists and turns in the saga of Rogers trying to acquire Shaw and what it means for us beleaguered consumers when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. And now the latest on the battle for competition in the telecom sector and how this may affect our ever-increasing telecom bills. Last week, the Competition Tribunal dismissed an application from the Competition Bureau of Canada seeking to block Rogers' proposed $26 billion purchase of Shaw Communications. The Competition Bureau argued that the merger of the two companies would lessen competition, trigger higher prices, and lead to a worsening of service. Canada, as we know all too well, has some of the most expensive telecom prices in the world. The Competition Bureau announced that it will appeal the decision uh, to allow the merger, and the deal still requires approval from Innovation, Science, and Economic Development Canada. And in the meantime, the minister in, in charge, François-Philippe Champagne, has said he will wait 
for the process to work its way through the courts before he makes his decision. If you got all that, where does that leave us? Uh, let me give you the numbers. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Stephen Zolf, a corporate lawyer with Aird and Bearless, who specializes in competition law, and Ellen Roseman, a consumer advocate and journalist. Hello and welcome. Hi, Libby. Thank you, Libby. So, Ellen, uh, it, it's at least a reprieve. I mean, the Competition Bureau argued that this would lead to less competition and higher prices and poorer service. And I think that is what history tells us anyway. Uh, yes, the um, Competition Tribunal, which should have a different name because it's very easy to confuse Competition Bureau and Competition Tribunal. Yeah, I agree. Totally separate entities, uh, which aren't connected. But the competition tribunal, uh, did a hearing, a very, very rushed hearing. They tried to finish it by the end of the year because Rogers said it would cost millions of dollars, uh, to pay bondholders if it wasn't finished before the end of the year. So they rushed through this and they were looking basically at the effects of competition in Alberta and BC, which was the, the subject of the the, the hearing and the complaints, and uh, they didn't really look at, uh, uh, they, they really felt that it wouldn't change, that it wouldn't really hurt those particular areas. And uh, now we've extended it till the end of January, and this is, mind you, almost getting to two years since the original merger was announced. But the big issue is Videotron, which Rogers and Shaw agreed to sell their um the, the Freedom Mobile 2, Videotron is a Quebec-based company, which is very competitive in Quebec and has been a disruptor there. And uh, this was not in the original uh, offer. And it seems wrong that the tribunal didn't even mention it, didn't talk about it. Uh, Rogers and Shaw had already signed a lot of contracts with Videotron, so maybe they felt that they couldn't disrupt this deal or uh, tear it up. But it uh, it doesn't seem right that they aren't looking at the original offer versus the amended, uh, you know, uh, terms that these companies are offering. It looks like, in general, in Canada, the big uh, companies are in the driver's seat and the smaller companies go along because that's the only way that they can, uh, you know, get somewhere if uh, if they can be merged. Okay. Stephen Zolf, what's your take? Uh, yeah, thank you, Libby, and, and, and good afternoon, Ellen, as well. Um, yeah, we should keep in mind, though, that what was released on the 29th of December was just a summary of the competition tribunal's determinations, and we're obviously awaiting the, the review, the full decision, which uh, could come out as early as uh, today or tomorrow, um, if there's some uncertainty about that. So we need to see the full analysis, and I, I would definitely caution your listeners about that. Um, so, and, and as Ellen said, you know, there was a rush to get the decision out for sure. Um, but it will be interesting to see. I mean, as you may have heard, the Competition Bureau, the Commissioner of Competition, to add yet another confusing term, has, uh, has stated that they will seek leave to appeal uh, the Competition Tribunal's ruling to the Federal Court of Appeal. Uh, and that will take uh, a fair bit of time to get through, but the more immediate question for everyone to think about is they will likely seek a stay of the competition tribunal's ruling um, pending consideration of the appeal. And that's a really important point because without the stay, if the, if the, you know, if the federal court of appeal decides to hear the appeal, um, but does not grant a stay or an injunction, um, the parties can go ahead and close uh, under law, uh, which is very interesting. There's a bit of a risk there, depending on what the Federal Court of Appeal ultimately decides if, if it does go ahead and consider the appeal. So that's kind of an interesting um, dilemma, or if you will, or a dynamic that's before the parties. Again, we don't have the full text of the decision. Uh, we have a literally a one-and-a-half-page summary of what we're all going under. Well, yeah, um, that's true. Uh, uh, 
Ellen, I, it also occurred to me that there might be yet another different uh, pitfall for consumers that if Rogers, you know, there's deadlines and if it takes longer, right now, the deadline, I believe, has been extended to January 31st. If it takes longer and they've got to pay this uh, to what it around $250 million to bondholders, isn't that something that Rogers customers are going to get stuck with even before this whole thing is decided? Well, it wasn't clear that they needed the full decision before the end of the year. They needed a decision, which the competition tribunal did in this one and a half page uh, decision. I printed it out myself and I read it and I thought, where's the meat? You know, what's <laughs> going on here? But they did say that they felt that it wasn't an issue and that they were uh, giving their permission for the deal to go ahead. Um, and uh, it's it's hard to, you know, one of the things that I found out uh, uh when I was at the Star, I did a lot of telecom complaint handling for <laughs> consumers, and I didn't hear too much about Freedom Mobile. But it appears that lately, the company's getting worse and worse in terms of its customer service. Uh, a woman got in touch with me, and she had been she'd gotten a fixed price deal on her uh, mobile service, and then she was overcharged for a number of months. And she had to get in touch with the company, and she couldn't find it easily to get them to reverse it. And when I got involved, they reversed it. But then they didn't seem to want to uh, – uh, they, they stopped the overbilling, but they didn't give her a, a refund. And she said she started looking online, and then I went there, too, to the Better Business Bureau, uh, the profile of um, Freedom Mobile. They had an F, meaning, you know, the worst rating and uh, loads of complaints, and on, they also had a, lo- a lot of reviews, and the company had a, a customer service re- uh, rating of 1 out of 10. <laughs> sorry, 1 out of 5, sorry. And then I looked at other ones, Trustpilot, Yelp, uh, Facebook, uh, Red Flag Deals. Uh, the company seems to be short of cash, and that's probably one of the reasons why Shaw wanted to get out of the business, because they just couldn't make it work as a, a, a player, you know, with... Um, with only one product in Ontario, you know, we don't really have too much um, Shaw in Ontario. So to make it work as a single offering and uh, the company's just getting, you know, cash strapped and kind of like a lame duck. They know they're not going to be around for too much longer. So they're not treating their customers all that well. I'd be interested in hearing from your listeners as to if anybody's had some problems with Freedom Mobile, if they've been a customer. Well, well, I guess the question is, which telecoms treat their customers well. Uh, (laughs) I'm not sure that it's a very long list, but let me give the numbers out again. Uh, People out there, I know it's a holiday, but uh, if you have something to say about your cell phone company, your internet company, give us a shout, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And yeah, I think uh, customer service is 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 not i would guess it's not the uh the biggest quality of any of these companies <laughs> steven zolf yes um well as you know libby i mean as you said at the outset um the the, the issue i think canadians have focused on when it comes to wireless retail pricing is price <laughs> as opposed to non-price characteristics such as customer service, et cetera. Obviously, that's a factor. But, you know, as you said uh, at the front, uh, there's always these ongoing comparisons between pricing, uh, wireless pricing in Europe, wireless pricing in the United States versus Canadian prices. Um, That said, you know, the parties have always, the main incumbents in Canada have always argued that, you know, our market characteristics are different. There's a higher per user cost to provide service uh, in our you know, and given the geographic scope of the country, et cetera, uh, and the capital investment needed, et cetera. But um, certainly um, at the consumer level, uh, consumers rightly ask, you know, do we have competitive options? Yeah, do we? Uh, So where does this leave us, Ellen, in terms of should consumers just kind of sit tight? Well, there's not really much we can do about it. It doesn't look as if uh, anybody's asking uh, consumers for comments uh, or uh, to express their concerns about it. And 
as we know, this is a very legalistic process, and there were, what, four or five different government agencies that had to uh, agree to, for it to go ahead. And the last one, the ISED, I think its initials are, hasn't even chimed in yet. So there's not much we can do to, to expedite it to make it go faster. Um, and we're not quite sure what the government actually thinks about it. Uh, uh, the minister is making the right noises, but, uh, you know, is he, is he going to wait, intervene, uh, try and speed things up? Uh, we haven't really got a sense of it so far, at least as, as I've seen. Well, Let's take a, just a sec. Thing, Sorry, I just want to uh, take a call from John in Toronto. He wants to talk about his Freedom mo- Mobile experience. I'd like to hear about it. Is this me? Yes, John. Oh, hi. Yeah, I uh, got initiated into uh, portable phones, and I went into the uh, shop, and I would go in and top it up every month. But this is crazy. So I had it done through the bank. For when I got my bills from Freedom Mobile, I've noticed, now that I have a paper trail, that someone, I just have a very basic plan, $24 a month, and someone was using the phone to do international texting and phone calls because they list the uh, they list it on on the invoice. So I would I didn't mind calling about it because I got my little you know uh, you had to call Egypt every time um, to get the, uh, the the explanations. It took two years to actually address the fact that someone was using my phone behind my back to do international texting. That's uh, fraud, I would guess. And I even contacted the yes, the CRTC, uh-huh. and they haven't responded to me yet. Okay. Do you still use Freedom? Well, because it's a grandfather clause, I, I do. But um, I, I don't think that we'll have cheaper bills down the road. And I was very concerned about international calling. Like, international calling was uh, 39 minutes in September. Okay, said, John. Thanks for that. Uh, uh, I'm not sure I totally follow that story, but uh, two years to resolve anything seems like an awfully long time. Stephen, you were about to weigh in responding to what Ellen said. Well, I mean, the theme we're hearing already, Libby, is, is just the consumer um, interest, uh, you know, whether it's terms of service and quality of service and and the issue John just mentioned, or whether it's prices, I should just, I just wanted to say that the Competition Bureau did a very, very lengthy assessment. As you know, the deal was first announced, I think, in March 2021. Um, not only did they issue Section 11 orders for production from all kinds of parties, including all the other facilities carriers like Bell, TELUS, etc., but they also called for comment from consumers. And then, moreover, there's there's a second-order consumer level here. Um, as Ellen mentioned, the minister hasn't announced his final decision. The minister needs to approve the transfer of Freedom Mobile Spectrum licenses to Rod, uh, to Videotron, the divestiture party. Um, but he has come out on record, uh, Philippe Champagne, the Minister of Innovation, Science, Economic Development, as saying that he wants a commitment from Videotron to, to ensure that prices are no higher than what they currently are in Quebec, and that they will also keep the licenses for 10 years. And uh, In other words, this should not be a flip, uh, you know, like a house flip, as it were, you know, to a third-party buyer, which would probably come at the expense of consumers. So he seems to have asked for those commitments. Uh, now, he is reserving judgment now that he's seen that this might go to or will be going to an appeal. But I just wanted to point out those two consumer levels. Um, when we get down to the minutiae of complaints on a given subscriber, that's slightly different. And I know John may have some remedy with the uh, CCTS, the uh, uh, you know consumer com- uh, telecom complaints provider that is under the auspices of the CRTC. But I acknowledge that sometimes these getting remedies can be frustrating. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm looking at the clock. We're out of time. It looks like uh, it's going to be quite a while before this thing is resolved. Ellen, I'm giving you the last 20 seconds. (laughs) I'd say that uh, if you are a, uh, particularly if you're a mobile customer, 
you have three choices in Ontario, uh, uh, Tell, Telus, Bell, and Rogers, and Freedom is the fourth. Read those reviews of Freedom before going ahead, because uh, the complaint that I got was similar to this one, where unexplained charges were on her bill, and uh, the police got involved. The company, I guess, invoked the police, because maybe there has been some... Uh, hacking of the network, and uh, that's she took two years to get a response as well. well. And then when she went to the uh, C- commissioner for complaints for telecommunication services, it said she waited too long and ruled her out. So nip these problems in the bud, and if you're not happy, look at some of the uh, bigger names with some of their smaller uh, discount brands as well, because you probably can get a better deal. Okay. Thank you so much, Ellen Roseman and Stephen Zolf. I appreciate the time, and I'm sure we'll be talking about this again. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Libby. Bye. Bye. Happy New Year. We're taking another break, and when we come back, uh, Canada has joined a long list of countries requiring negative COVID-19 tests for people coming from China, Hong Kong, and Macau. Uh, What is up with that when we return? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back to Fight Back. And starting this Thursday, Ottawa is going to temporarily require those traveling into Canada from China, Hong Kong and Macau to show proof of a negative COVID-19 test. Now, Canada is joining a long list of countries around the world that have instituted the same rule, but some scientists are saying it's more about politics than public health. What do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-744-740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Kerry Bowman, a bioethicist at the University of Toronto. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us. Happy New Year, Libby. Thank you. So how is this more about politics than public health? Well, you know, really what we know as we we roll into year three, year three plus is that airport checks or, you know, the advance of airport checks and point of entry screening or point of departure Um, They don't really do that much in terms of controlling, um, you know, uh, variants and things coming in. Look, on the surface of it, Libby, this seems seems like the most self-evident, wise thing we could possibly do. China has a billion people, billion plus now, actually. And, um, you know, the variants are, are, and those are to all indications that we know, Omicron variants running rife because they've lifted restrictions. So why wouldn't we do this? There's other ways of doing this, like wastewater testing, including wastewater testing from airplanes, um, really would be a very effective strategy, I am told, remembering I'm not an epidemiologist. But, you know, it doesn't seem wise. And earlier in the pandemic, you know, South Africa enormously shared their wonderful data with us to let us know that Omicron had surfaced and we made some bad decisions and put people in very difficult situations with travel restrictions. And it feels right. It doesn't mean it is right. Uh, The argument for it uh, is that it's not so much about controlling, you know, thinking that that this is going to stop the variants. It's just that China is not being very forthcoming about the variants that are uh, on the loose there. And this is one way of dealing with that. Yeah, so I'm not convinced that's going to work, by the way, um, but that's just my opinion. Um, yeah, so we, we forced the hand of China to share more information. And it's absolutely true. We don't know what's really going on in China. But look, in fairness, and I'm not saying this is fully analogous, it's not fully analogous. But we don't fully know what's going on in Canada either, because we don't really have good data anymore. Yeah. Now, look, it, it's on a whole different scale in China, and I get that. But, but you know, will it force their hand? I'm not sure it will. And I, I think with China as well, and, you know, I, I used to live in Hong Kong, and I've spent a lot of time in China, and I really do believe that we enormously underestimate the depth of cultural differences. Like, it's not a liberal Western democracy. That's not a criticism. It's just not. And it's not a goal to become one either. It never has been. And, um, 
I think we figured that out. (laughs) I'm not sure we have. I'm not sure we have. I think, you know, we we keep expecting them to act just like us, and it's not going to happen. Yeah, but they, they, yeah, well, they, at the very beginning of the pandemic, they hit it. And now, rather than being like South Africa and sharing the sequencing of the variant, they're holding it back. Well, if there's anything to hold back, that's the question, because we don't really know, right? And and South Africa really was amazingly forthcoming and showed tremendous responsibility to the whole world. There's no question about that. But I do think, Libby, this is tinged with geopolitical tensions as well. If this was a Western nation, would we be as outraged? I, I think at this point, and look, I'm not suggesting China's blameless, and I'm not trying to wave a Chinese flag here. Or, or anything like that. But I do think whatever China does, we're going to be very, very critical of anything they do um, at this point, because we were very critical of zero COVID policy. And Omicron just absolutely just took over. And Omicron, you can have any policy you want, it, it seems to me, and it just keeps going. So, so you know, they've lifted it, and, and, and we will see. But look, so they've got a billion people. There's 8 billion people in the world since November. I mean, plus or minus, we don't know the exact number, obviously. So something nasty that could come at us from any corner of the planet Earth. Um, And it could be China. Um, But I really think if we're that concerned, we should be considering wastewater testing. And, you know, Omicron is, is rife here in Canada and North America. It's all over the place. I mean, how many people do you know that have had Omicron? The list is almost uncountable. It, exactly. But, uh, you know, there's still a, a lot of people who feel that this is at least something that we can do to keep some of it out. No? Why not wastewater testing? Why not something where our scientists, where our epidemiologists say this is a better idea? And look, you, you know as well as I do, this is not my opinion alone. I mean, and I, I defer to some of our very accomplished epidemiologists that are not convinced this is a good idea, um, that it's really going to make such a difference. It sure does feel like a good idea. I really get that. It feels like a good idea. It doesn't what's, mean it necessarily is. What's the downside? Well, the downside is it's useless, um, and it doesn't do anything. It doesn't keep us safe. And I think, in my opinion, it doesn't help the geopolitical situation. It's one more thing for our countries to fight over. Um, and I, I, I think globally, you know, Canada did fairly well with the pandemic so far. But, you know, globally, there's been Canada and not just Canada. Like, we have not stood together globally on this at all. It's been one fight after another. We've been, you know, we haven't helped nearly as much as we pretended we did. And I think the great failure of all of this has been the global approach. You know, a fantasy would have been that this pandemic would lead to tremendous global integration. And this really hasn't happened. And I don't think it does anything to help with that. Okay, I'm looking at the clock. We are rapidly running out of time, people. I see the phone lines uh, lighting up. We can get back to this and take the calls on this topic tomorrow. Dr. Kerry Bowman, thank you so much for joining us, and Happy New Year. Thank you, Libby, and same to you. Bye-bye. And Happy New Year to all of you. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.